How are you? Uh, you're not awake. Uh, can we try that again? How are you? Hello. It's great to have you here. Awesome to see you here. And uh, we'll just say a greeting over uh, Mission and East Abbey are joining us. So it's great to have you guys with us as well. So you are going to need your Bibles. We are in John chapter 14. Uh, so I've been encouraging you to bring your literal physical paper Bibles along with you. I think it's really important to read along. But if you don't have those, open in an app or on your um, a tablet or whatever, and going to follow along. This text has some amazing promises and an amazing amount of comfort. And so uh, we are just in the midst of a conversation that Jesus is having at the so-called Last Supper, the last meal that he has with his disciples. So I want to just set it up a little bit. If you happen to be visiting with us or if you've missed some of the series, uh, to just let you know what we're in, we are in a very long study in the Gospel of John. Uh, it is a long book, 21 chapters. It actually divides pretty neatly into two halves. Uh, the first uh, 11 chapters deal with three years of Jesus' public ministry. And so we studied those chapters last year. And then from chapter 12 on, so the last 10 chapters of this book, uh, deal with just the last seven days of Jesus' life. Literally one week in the life of Jesus. And so it slows down to a crawl as we work our way through these last seven days. And so we're specifically into literally the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And we are going to be in John chapter 14 tonight. But I want to just remind you of where we've been. So we started John chapter 12. That's where we began just a few weeks ago in September uh, with a dinner being held in Bethany, two miles south of Jerusalem. The Passover is at hand, this final week of Jesus' life. And there is a banquet. Then we saw Jesus give the first hint uh, in the text there that there was one of them was going to betray him, a man named Judas. The next scene is the triumphal entry. Jesus goes into Jerusalem and all the crowds come waving and crying out, Hosanna, save now, and welcoming him into Jerusalem. But by the end of that chapter, we're told Jesus hid himself from public eye that he no longer showed himself publicly, that he hid away with his disciples, that Jesus knew what was in the heart of the crowds. That he knew in just a few short days, the majority of these people who had been shouting out, Hosanna, save now, would turn on him and would be shouting out, crucify him. He knew their hearts were hard. And so he hid, he hid away with the disciples. So we get into John chapter 13, where we've been the last few weeks, and he is now in that... Uh, that time that we call the Last Supper, uh, the final meal in the upper room. And we go into five chapters of the most intimate conversation that we have recorded with Jesus, starting first with the 12, and then as Judas leaves to go and betray him, finally just the 11. Literally five full chapters pouring into them strength and encouragement for what is coming and what is ahead. And in essence, what Jesus says in these five chapters over and over and over again, he keeps repeating it to his disciples, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you. Literally 25 times in various forms, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father, I'm leaving you, let a little while, I'll be with you. Literally again and again and again, 25 times, it's like, Jesus, we get the point, you're going away, I'm leaving you. He uses the phrase, the world, 40 times. 40 times, I'm leaving you in this world. And when we get over to chapter 17 and he prays for them, he literally says, Father, I'm not asking that you would take them out of the world. I'm just asking that you would keep them from the evil one. And so the overarching theme of these five chapters is this one theme taken as a whole would be this. I am leaving you in this world, but don't freak out. 
I'm leaving you here, but don't freak out. There is comfort here, and there is an amazing promise in this text as well as we get to the end. And as we start reading it, there are some very familiar texts here, and many of you are going to go, yeah, I've heard that passage before, and it is of great comfort. And so uh, Jesus gets into this upper room conversation. He knows that he's leaving. So chapter 13, 1 and 3, last week's text or a couple weeks ago, says Jesus knows it's time for him to return to the Father. In verse 3, it says he knows he's come from the Father and he's returning to the Father. But he has not yet told the disciples this until Judas leaves the room. And then in last week's text, we see the first explicit declaration in verse 33 when he says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, and then I inserted the references there, 7 and 8, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, you need to note that this conversation, there are three parts to it. We're, it's really one week or one conversation broken into three parts. But we should take chapter 13, 31, right through the end of chapter 14, all as one conversation. It's got to be read as a unit, but it's too long, so we've broken it into three parts. There's this one line of thought, I'm leaving you, but I want to pour comfort and courage into you. I'm leaving you, but three things that you can take comfort in. So last weekend, you can take comfort in one another's love. Love one another as I have loved you. A new commandment I'm giving you. So I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. You have one another. So lean on one another, love one another. As I'm going to lay my life down for you, would you lay your life down for one another? The world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This week, he's saying, I'm leaving you, but I'm actually going to prepare a place, and you're going to be with me, so there's comfort in that. I'm going to return. Next week, he will talk about, I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. So these three conversations, all part of one, but broken into three parts. And so we're in the middle chunk, chapter 14, the first 14 verses. And we're going to read it in small little chunks, and then we're going to frame it around these five words, the what the where, the way, the who, and the why. And we're going to spend most of our time on the middle in the way. But those five words, the what, the where, the way, the who, and the why. That's what this text is about. So just the first few verses, the first few actually words in verse 1. 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, we're going to talk about the what. What is going on here? The disciples are troubled. Now, that word is a very strong word. It's agitated, it's disturbed, it's stirred up. It's you're all worked up over something. Let not your hearts be troubled. So we could just press pause right there and we could have a very interesting conversation if we would just talk about all the things that are troubling us, worrying us and disturbing us. Is there anything that you're worried about in your life? Are you awake? Is there anything that worries you and troubles you in your life? Yes, this world is full of trouble. On the macro level, we could say, you know what? Global conflicts. I mean, our eyes are on the nightly news with what's going on in Israel and the Gaza Strip right now, with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. But those two massive international conflicts that get all the news, we know the Geneva Academy has a little website. They track global armed conflicts and they track what's going on around the world. You go on their website, you will find out that there are actually 110 armed conflicts going on right now. Most of them are small, regional, tribal, border skirmishes, guerrilla warfare, drug cartels, etc. But there are 45 conflicts in the Middle East right now. There are 35 on the continent of Africa. There are 21 in Asia. There are seven in Eastern Europe, most of them involving Russia. And there are six in Latin America. 
So you wonder why that surge of refugees, why you're seeing it on the news, these hundreds of thousands of people pressing in on the southern border of the U.S., it's because Mexico and Colombia in particular are are filled with drug cartels and war going on, conflict. It's happening all the time. We could talk about finance and world markets and economies. Uh, Have you noticed uh, this thing called inflation? Have you been to the grocery store lately? The high cost of everything, from education to gas to diapers to produce, not least of which the overpriced housing market and the rising interest rates and the concerns of so many people wondering, will our children ever be able to own a home in the economy that we're in right now in Western Canada? And then on top of those macro issues, those big concerns, just make it personal. And come close to home, and every single one of us have our own set of personal worries. Parents who have deep concerns for their children. Adult children who have deep concerns for their aging parents. How will we care for them? Personal health concerns, financial worries, theological questions and debates. We all have lots of things that trouble us. And so we could go down this path and, and, and look at the dozens of scriptures where the scriptures comfort us and have so much to say about trouble in general. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. In everything through prayer and supplication, be anxious for nothing, but take your prayers, your supplications to the Lord and the peace of God will rule your heart and mind. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. The Lord knows you need these things. The pagan world runs after these things, but the Lord knows you need them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And dozens more like it, right? Amen? You're like, we could say a lot about trouble. And it is true that the scriptures get a lot of comfort to the hurting and broken and worried people. But in this context, there's one specific worry that is on their mind. It's not all of those other things. In this moment, they're thinking about what Jesus just said, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. And Peter puts their thoughts into words when he's like, what do you mean you're leaving? It's like he says, Jesus, you know what that little pep talk you just gave us about loving one another? That's all well and good. Love it, Jesus. But let's go back a sentence earlier. Let's go back one thought earlier. What was that bit about your leaving us? Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. You can't leave us now. And in fact, Jesus, have you not read Daniel 7 about the Son of Man? The Son of Man is going to set up an eternal kingdom that will have no end to it. You cannot leave. You see, they had no category for Jesus leaving them. And so Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Trust me. You trust my Father, you can trust me too. And then he goes on to talk about a where, a very important where, verse two to four. And he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So Peter's like, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, two things. Let me talk about that where. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return so that you can be with me. Now, what Jesus is talking about, obviously, is our eternal home, our dwelling with the father, or what we might commonly refer to as heaven, quote unquote. And that's not wrong. Uh, Heaven is the experience of being with the father, but there's a lot of 
misunderstanding around heaven, both where it is and what it's going to be like. And the most common misunderstanding is that heaven is somewhere out there in the universe. Uh, Heaven is up and hell is down, and so heaven must be out there somewhere. We can't see it, but one day we'll see it. It's out there in the sky somewhere, and it's, it's way out there. We just don't know where it is. And the second uh, is this kind of existence that we're going to have when we eventually cross through the veil of death. And thank you to Philadelphia cream cheese. We have this imagery that we, like the angels, are going to be bouncing around on clouds eating bagels for the rest of eternity. So these misunderstandings of what heaven is like. Now, again, it would be really tempting to run off on an entire topical message about heaven. And it would be very, very interesting. And it is a very important topic. But... Jesus doesn't actually unpack it in this text. He just simply says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again, and I'm going to take you to that place. Now, if you want to know what our future home looks like, I would encourage you, the very best read is the Bible itself. Go to Revelation, the last two books of the Bible, the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, and it tells us explicitly what life in our eternal home is going to look like. And it tells us where that eternal home is. Do you know where our eternal home is? Right here, right? Did you know that? Our eternal home is on this earth. It is not out there in the universe in some ethereal, unseen realm. The Lord is going to remake this place, a new heavens and a new earth. The Jerusalem is going to come down from the heaven, and we are going to live on a completely recreated world. Woohoo! That will be great. And if you want a great book on this topic, one of the very best, I would recommend pick up Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's about 400 pages long. It is the best expose on heaven that I have read in recent years. But Jesus doesn't unpack it. He doesn't go there at all in our text. He says about this where is simply, I want you to be with me. And I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to come that you will be with me, that where I am, you can be also. In essence, our eternal home is about this withness with Jesus. Now, what I want to point out is that to our modern eyes and our modern ears, we might miss it, something that those first people would not have missed. Jesus, when he uses this language, is using wedding imagery. You're like, where's the wedding imagery? Well, it's all over it if you live in the first century. Jesus, in that culture, a young couple would get engaged, more than likely an arranged marriage. Their parents would find a bride or a groom for their children. They may have grown up in the same village or they may have lived miles apart, but the families agree these two are going to get married and they would likely meet at their engagement. Then that groom, the groom-to-be, would go home to his father's house and he would begin building a room on his father's house so that he had somewhere to bring his bride. And when that room was finished, then a wedding would take place. Now, they were legally married. Engagements in that day were much different than engagements in ours. To get out of them, you had to be divorced. It's why Joseph decided to put Mary aside quietly. When you read the Christmas story, he literally had to divorce her, even though they hadn't come together yet as husband and wife. But in this context, there's no date set for that wedding. When's the wedding date? Well, the wedding date is when the room's ready. So the groom goes home and he starts to build. And you can read the signs of the times, quote unquote. The studs are going up, the stucco's on the walls, the paint's going in, it looks like everything's finished. Surely his coming is very soon. And when that room is ready, the groom will go to get his bride. He will walk across the village or he will make a trip up to the next city and he will meet her. So you go to Matthew 25. And there's a story there of 10 bridesmaids. 
You think big weddings are a thing of, you know, just the 23rd century, or 23rd century? Yeah, well, when we get there, uh, the 21st century? No, 10 bridesmaids, and they grow sleepy. They grow weary of waiting. They know that the guy's room is almost ready to come get his bride, but they're not prepared, and he shows up at midnight. Five of them don't have oil in their lamp, and they don't get into the wedding. It's wedding language. John the Baptist says, you know what? I'm just a friend of the groom. I've got to decrease. He must increase. They were asked, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And he's like, because when the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast, but the bridegroom's going to go away and then he'll come back again, and they will fast in the in-between. And then you look forward to Revelation 19, a wedding feast, a great wedding feast that you want to be there for. And I heard a great multitude crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I'll tell you about this wedding language. It came home to me in a very explicit way. A few years ago, Carolyn and I are on a, a tour in northern India, spiritual prayer and awareness tour, going to all the spiritual sites and meeting with people. And our tour guide, a missionary, had this bus driver that he always used on his tours. And that bus driver, for whatever reason, took a liking to us and, and invited us to come to his home. And this missionary tour guide said, this has never happened. In all the years that I've used this bus driver, he's never invited us back to his home. This is very, very significant. Something's going on. He's, there's something special about you. Now I need to set you up for this because we're going to go to his home and his parents are very poor. It's a very humble home. And in this culture they are required to offer you hospitality. They're going to offer us a meal, which they couldn't afford to feed this whole team of 18 people. So I am going to politely on your behalf decline a meal, but we will take tea with them. So sure enough, we get to this very humble home and our bus driver introduces us to his parents and all of this being done through a translator. And then he begins to tour a few of us through the home and we see their living quarters. We see a worship room, which is a very interesting, a whole different story I could tell about that. Then he shows us the bedroom where his brother and his bride, his sister-in-law lives in this room. And then he takes a few of us to another room and he says, this is my room. This is the room to which I will bring my bride. And we're like, oh, you got a girlfriend? Are you engaged? Not yet, but I have hope. He had built a room on the back of his father's house. And his mom and dad would find him a bride and he would bring that bride to his father's house. You see, when Jesus told this story, everyone knew what he was talking about. A bride and a groom. I'm going away, but I'm going to come back and get you. The where in this specific text is I want you with me. And you know the way, and then Thomas pushes back. Now, we're not taking time on this, but there's four questions in this text. Peter asks one, Philip asks one, Thomas asks one. Next week, Thaddeus asks another. But Thomas is like, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. Verse five to six, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, in my opinion, chapter 14, verse 6 is the most important verse in this section because we get the exclusive claim that separates Christianity from all other faiths in the world, from all other religions. And the question could be asked in many different ways. What is the way to heaven? What is the road to heaven? How can one get things right with God? 
And what Jesus says here is shocking to our modern ears when he says there is only one way to get right with God, and it's me. I am the path. I am the way. I am the truth. You see, most people in our world today don't believe that. And sadly, increasing number of Christians don't believe this anymore. Most believe, oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere, you can embrace any religion, any philosophy. All those roads eventually will lead to the top of the same mountain. So one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, I heard recently speaking on this. He's a Scotsman. He's been 40 years preaching at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And he said, what if you asked the man on the street about such things? What would you hear? You would hear things like these, these five things. There is no unique revelation in the history of man. There's no great story uh, that brings it all together. And there's no agreement. And it would be silly to think there is. And it's arrogant to make an exclusive claim. Secondly, there are many different ways to reach God. So you think about the analogy of a wheel. Religions are like the spokes on a wheel, but the hub is the same. Or the mountaintop and all the roads that lead to the top of the mountain. Or the elephant and the blind men. Have you heard that illustration? That all the world's religions are like blind men touching an elephant. One has the tail, one has the trunk, one has an ear, one has his arm wrapped around the leg. They're all feeling a part of the whole, but they don't see the whole. Number three, all of these views have their problems and challenges. None of them alone can satisfy. So number four, we should do our best to harmonize them, to synchronize them, to take the best, take a little bit of this, a little buffet here, a little bit of stew here, like mix it all together. So a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Christianity, add a, in some new age philosophy, add in some meditation, some mysticism, and make your own spiritual buffet, your own individual path to God. And number five, don't they all agree on the big stuff anyway? It's just a few minor points where they have differences. And Begg calls this popular pluralism. Popular pluralism, and I am sure that most of you have bumped into this along the road of life. And the question we've got to ask ourselves, however, is are those statements true? Do all religions actually teach and believe the same thing? Uh, but listen, think about it. The Buddhist says there is no eternal soul. The Hindu says there is. They can't both be right. Islam says that Jesus Christ was not crucified. Christianity says he was. It can't both be true. Judaism says Jesus was not the Messiah, but we say he was the Messiah, and they can't both be right. Now, if you want some great food for thought, I've recommended this book before. It's probably 20 years old by now, but it's a great book. Stephen Prothero's book, God is Not One. And why I love this book in particular is because it is not written by an evangelical. In fact, it's not written by a Christian. It's written by a guy who self-identifies himself as religiously confused, but he is a professor of religion at Boston University, and he does a really good job unpacking the eight major philosophies and religions that he says rules the world. And I'm going to read a good chunk from this book, and we'll put it on the screen for you. It says, at least since the first petals of the countercultural bloomed across Europe and the U.S. in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and all are true. It's a claim which reaches back to all religions are one by the English poet William Blake is as odd as it is intriguing. No one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. 
Capitalism and socialism are so obviously at odds that their differences hardly bear mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy. Yet, scholars continue to claim that religious rivals, such as Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, are, by some miracle of the imagination, essentially the same. And this view resounds in the echo chamber of popular culture. Now remember, this guy's not a Christian. He says this, the most popular metaphor for this view portrays the great religions as different paths up the same mountain. And then he says this, this is a lovely sentiment, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. It's comforting to pretend that the great religions make up one big happy family, but this sentiment, however well-intentioned, is neither accurate nor ethically responsible. God is not one. Now, he would go on to ask the question, what do the religions share in common? And he says this, there is one thing they share in common. It is not so much a finish line as it is a starting point. Where they begin is the simple observation that something is wrong with the world. Religious folk worldwide agree something has gone awry. So with that premise in place, that something is wrong in the world, then we ask the question, what is wrong with the world? And secondly, can it be fixed? And the Bible gives us a very clear answer that we call the gospel. The gospel, that we were actually created in fellowship with our creator, but that we rebelled against him and his ways. And not just that we fell away, we drifted away, we sort of stumbled away, we intentionally walked away. We shook our fist at God and said, I don't need you, I don't want you, I will make my own way, thank you very much. And our only hope and fix is that we can somehow be reconciled to the maker But we know in our heart of hearts that justice demands things be paid for. Uprisings have to be crushed. And so the question remains, how can a sinful person approach a holy God? And so God makes a plan that he would come and walk among us, that he would take on human flesh, that he would make the way for us to be right with God. And then he says, I will show you the way. But he doesn't say, I will show you a path in the sense of just follow me, do what I do, follow my example. I've come as a great moral path. He says, no, I actually am the way. I am the way. In what sense? So D.A. Carson, great New Testament scholar. He is himself the savior, the lamb of God, the one who so speaks that those who are in the graves hear his voice and come forth. He so mediates God's truth and God's life that he is the very way to God, the one who alone can say, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know that every weekend when we gather, there are people among us who are on a journey towards Jesus, but aren't there yet. People who are curious, people who are asking questions, people in one sense or another have this spiritual stirring in their soul. And so if There are some with us who would say, I'm not yet a Christian. I wouldn't call myself that yet, but I'm open to it. You might be asking, what is it about the claims of the Christian faith that make Christ different from others? What is it that sets Christianity apart from others? And to put it in the simplest terms, I would use a story from C.S. Lewis' life. 
So the story is told that C.S. Lewis walks into the staff room at Oxford and there's a debate going on and they're like, hey, great, Jack's here. He'll have the answer. We've been arguing amongst ourselves. What is it that sets Christianity apart from the other world religions? And C.S. Lewis's answer is, that's easy, one word, grace. Grace. Because no other religion has this concept of free unmerited favor, grace. No other religion will tell you up front that it's actually humanly impossible for you to be made right with God. Every other religion will give you a list of things that you must do. Only Christianity tells you that everything that needs to be done has already been done. The work is finished. That the right relationship that you're longing for has actually been secured by another person on your behalf. Another person has done the work so that you do not have to. Jesus Christ did what was impossible for us to do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. And then he walked to Calvary and laid that life down. He spread his arms out and said, it is finished. It is done. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to get to the Father, you come through me. And you might be asking, how do I get in on that gift? Well, you simply lay your life down. You got to get to the point where you say, I need to turn to him as my savior and admit that try as I may, I can't fix the mess of my life. And so I am giving you my life, Jesus, and I'm taking my hands off. I'm receiving what you've done for me. And I'm saying, literally, save me, Lord. Do for me what I can't do for myself. In other words, just say yes. That's all you need to do. And he goes on to say in this next question, well, you talk about this way, and you talk about the Father. Why don't you show us the Father? And that question comes from Philip, verse 8 to 11. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, we're not going to spend much time here, but he's talking about the who. And the reason we're not going to spend a lot of time here, because this is actually a repeat of a study that we did back in chapter 5. Philip, have you been with me so long that you still don't see it? I unpacked this already way back in chapter five. If you've been with me, you've been with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one and the same. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We are one nature and being. And so believe me because of my words or believe me because of my miracles. And in a few days, you're gonna see the most uh, amazing display of my power when I walk out of the tomb alive. And Jesus makes no apology. He does not veil his identity. He says, in essence, Philip, the father is standing right in front of you. If you've seen me, you have seen the father. We are of one essence. The works I do are the father's works. The words I speak are the father's words. So we studied that back in chapter five, and that's all we're going to say there. And this next text is so fun. Because what he says next is this. Boys, what's going to happen next will blow your minds. Because the same authority the Father gave to me is going to be passed along to you. There's greater works yet to be done. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there is a lot to chew on in that text. It is deep and it is rich. But what I want to pick up on specifically is what is embedded in that final paragraph, the answer to the why. The why question, there's a because in the middle of that sentence, if you see it there. Because. What Jesus is saying, I'm going away, why? Because, it's indicated because I go to the Father, because I'm going away, greater works are going to be done. In fact, I'm going for this very reason so that these greater works will be done. Now, remember, I said it's all one conversation. Last week's love one another. This week's uh, what we're talking about now. And next week, the Holy Spirit's gonna come, all one conversation. Next week, we're gonna get there. I'm sending another comforter a helper, an enabler, an equipper, and he will usher in the age of great spiritual work. But for right now, note what Jesus says about how those works will get done. He says twice that he will do these greater works. He says it twice. Verse 13, whatever you ask, I will do it. Verse 14, ask it in my name and I will do it. Do it. So these greater works actually are accomplished by Jesus himself. I'm leaving you and you are going to do greater works. How will those works get done? Well, the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I've taught you. Next week's text. The Holy Spirit will empower you to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will glorify me as I have glorified the Father. The Holy Spirit will give you boldness and courage and authority and tenacity. Right now, you are a bunch of fearful, timid, worried, and troubled people. But in a few weeks, the Holy Spirit's going to fall like fire, and you're going to be transformed into a group of people who literally turn the world upside down. You're going to go into the temple squares and you're going to preach with boldness. You're going to confront false teachers who infiltrate the church. You're going to go out by land and by sea, on foot and horseback and by ship to every part of the known world carrying this gospel message. There are greater things coming down the pipe, boys. This tiny little thing that we started here in this tiny little corner of the Middle East is going to grow to become the greatest thing on the planet. Today, two billion people believe this. Woo! The mustard seed has become a giant tree. Amen? You're going to do greater things. And how is it going to happen? I'll tell you how it's going to happen. You're going to ask me and I'm going to do it. You ask me and I will do the work. Now, I have heard a lot of, wor- I have heard a lot of weird and wacko teaching on this particular text. Some weird applications. Because it looks like a magic wand. Go to God in prayer and tag on a, in the name of Jesus... And God becomes like a genie in a lamp. Or God becomes like a slot machine that you pull the lever and you are guaranteed that you're going to win every time. Just add those words in Jesus' name and he will do. You can ask whatever you want and he will do it all. And an entire theological system is built on that false teaching. The health and wealth prosperity gospel the so-called name-it-and-claim-it doctrines of the word-faith movement, that somehow my words have creative influence that I can just simply speak into the universe what I want, and if I add in Jesus' name, he has to do them things. Practically, I get everything I want. So years ago, our oldest daughter's in Mexico on a missions trip, and she comes home with this story. Down there for a couple weeks, and uh, 
number of missionaries traveling them around and there was one individual who was obviously influenced by the word faith movement because as they're driving around, she hears him saying these words, I received that Jeep in Jesus' name. It was kind of a weird statement. And then again, another Jeep passes. I received that Jeep in Jesus' name. By about the fourth time, and the girls are laughing in the back seat, they started to ask him, what is it that you're doing? And he's like, I want a Jeep. And the Lord told me that whatever I pray in Jesus' name, I will get. So I am receiving my Jeep in advance. I don't have a Jeep yet, but I'm gonna get one Jeep. Now, so if you see me out on the parking lot one weekend, sort of speaking over your vehicles, uh, this is what I'm doing. Jim Bird over there in Mission, that Jeep. I really want that Jeep. So I receive it in Jesus' name. Of most importance in these final verses is this. The asking here is a particular kind of asking. It does not say whatever I want, but whatever I ask in his name. It's an asking that is done in the name of, in other words, on behalf of. So in other words, I am not taking my little random wish list of things before God. I am doing the hard work and study and understanding that as I go to the Father, I am bringing requests that are in tune with the heart of the Savior. So Lord, help me know and understand what your will is. Help me to know how I pray in your name, in your character, in your place, in your desire, in your will. And so certainly there are tons of things that we can pray about because because Jesus told us to pray about them. Lord, you know the, co the condition of Abbotsford and Mission. You know, Lord, literally, we need thousands of workers in our city, some 210,000 people. We need workers in our schools and our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families, godly voices. We need them all across this city. Who will go out into the city? Oh, God, would you send out the word? And God, oh my goodness, they're sitting right in front of me, Lord. Would you send them out the doors into the schools, into the medical field? Would you send out workers? And besides that, Lord, we also need some pastors and some missionaries and some scholars and some leaders for our churches. Send them out, Lord. Lord, we know it is your will that our kids would stay sexually pure. Because your word says specifically, 1 Thessalonians 4, it is thy will that you would be sanctified. And so, Lord, we can pray with boldness, God, keep our children. If they're single, Lord, keep them pure. And if they marry, let them delight in the husband and the wife of their youth. And Lord, you've told us it's not your will that anybody should perish. And so I can come boldly before you with this very long list of people that I know and love who are currently far from you, and I can put their names in front of you, and I can say, Lord, would you do the work that only you can do? Would you draw these people to yourself? Lord, you also made a promise that you would build your church and that hell can't prevail against it. And Lord, right now, when we look at the Western world and we see church attendance declining, we can pray with boldness, Lord, revive your church. Raise up godly leaders and elders and deacons and pastors and godly parents and grandparents. One generation declaring your faithfulness to the next. Remind us, God, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is your will. And Lord, with full expectation, we can come before you and we can pound on the doors of heaven and we can ask you for revival. 
that you would stir up sleepy Christians and sleepy churches, that you would light a fire on altars that have grown cold. We can ask you for reconciliation and reformation, that people groups and social systems would literally be transformed by your work, Jesus. We can ask you in boldness for an awakening for all those people who are still in darkness. Lord, open their eyes, open their ears, let them see and hear and understand. We can with confidence ask these things. Why? Because we're asking in your name, Jesus. Jesus. We're asking what you've told us to ask. You see, there's lots of trouble in our world, is there not? If we took the time this evening, I am sure we could fill page after page after page after page of all the things that worry us and trouble us and disturb us. Wars and finances and politics and family issues, money issues, health issues, the world's a mess. But Jesus says it twice in this text. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And later, verse 27, next week, do not be afraid. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you. I'm going to our eternal home and I'm going to come back. And in the meanwhile, I'm actually coming right back. I'm coming back in the presence of the Spirit. And ultimately, I am going to return and I will be your God and you will be my people and we will be together. So keep your eyes up. Set your mind on the things above. Be alert. We've got work to do. And keep asking me, and I will keep working. You trust the Father. You can trust me too. This we know. We will see the enemy run. This we know that we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you've ever made. Jesus, you're unfailing. We trust you. You are who you say you are. You'll do what you say you'll do. We trust you, Jesus. We trust you. So stand with me. We're going to pray, and then we're going to actually sing those very words. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray for our church family. Knowing, Lord, as we've already talked about, that we could fill pages full of the things that worry us and trouble us the things that stir us up and agitate us. But we look at this promise as you sat there with the 11 and you said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust the Father, you can trust me too. I'm going away, but I'm coming again for you. And in the meanwhile, there's work to be done and all you need to do is ask and I'm gonna do that work. And so Lord, I pray that you would stir up in Northview Church the eyes of faith to see the works of Jesus that you still want to do in our time and our place and our generation. And without any apology, Lord, we are asking you to do what only you can do. We're asking you to awaken people who are still spiritually blind. We're asking you for revival, that you would stir up sleepy Christians and sleepy churches all across our country. We're asking you for reconciliation and reformation of all the systems and structures of all the craziness of our world about it, that by your spirit, you would infiltrate all those places. Lord, I'm praying that you would send out workers into the harvest field. And that is not pastors and missionaries. It is plumbers and teachers and moms and dads and neighbors. Lord, would you send us out into this harvest field? Lord, would you do a new work in us? Would you glorify Jesus through the work of the spirit in your people unto the glory of the Father? and our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.